Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as we come back to this very, uh, a very meaty and weighty chapter about the judgment of God. From the very beginning, people grappled with God's judgment. They've grappled with God's justice. They've grappled with His right to judge and the kind of judgment He gives. You remember even Cain, having just killed his brother, faced God and his judgment. And upon that judgment, when it's declared, Cain responds with a complaint. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain really starts a whole line of people, a whole history of people who have complained about God complained about his judgment, complained about his unfairness, complained about their punishment, complained about what will be their punishment or whatever it might be, calling into question God's justness, his fairness, his goodness. When tragedy happens to others or more likely when trials or misfortune come in their own life, people question, they question the way God deals with them. They question the way God deals with others. Even Job, unfortunately, was drawn into this. Job, goaded by his friends, was led to his own complaint. He says, though I'm in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summon him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it's a contest of strength, behold, he's mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. If I, uh, excuse me, I am blameless, I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of the judges. If it's not he, who then is it? So here's Job. He says, you've got all this calamity, you've got all this difficulty, you've got all this injustice. And who's the one covering the eyes of the judges? It's the Lord. Who's the one who is dealing unfairly? Who's the one who's dealing uh, um, without an even hand? It is He, He says. And all, really, throughout history, there have been people who have joined in that kind of complaint, who've given in to that kind of temptation, raising questions in the midst of suffering and calamity, raising questions against God, wondering how in the world He could be uh, like He is, wondering whether or not He's really good, and even beyond that, questioning whether or not God ought to even condemn people, whether or not He really justifiably could send someone to hell and still call Himself good. People have questioned and complained against God's justice. They have wondered why He doesn't take more account of their acts of generosity, of their deeds of kindness. 
I wonder even how he could judge people who seemingly are so innocent because they've never had a chance to hear the truth. They question whether or not it's fair for God to punish anyone, but especially to punish people who've never even heard the message of the Bible. Why doesn't God just save everyone? Why does God punish so many? And when He punishes them, is it right for Him to consign them for eternity to hell? Is that fair? Is that right? Is that just? You hear all kinds of questions like that in society. While certainly they need an answer on many different levels, we could answer just a few of them from our passage this morning. From Romans chapter 2, where Paul grapples with this very question. And he takes the same track as Moses, who, along with anyone else, is certainly saddened by the judgment of God, but understood it's not his place to question God. It's his place not to be angry with God, but to affirm him. Moses declares in Deuteronomy 32 his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Or Abraham says in Genesis 18, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Those who take issue with God's punishment, those who take issue with His judgment of sinners, His condemnation, whatever it is, they want just the opposite, ironically. They don't want a God who is faithful. They don't want a God who is upright. They don't want a God who is just. And they don't want a God who is without iniquity. They want a God who's very much like themselves. They want a God who in some way is uneven. They want a God who has some shifting standard. Some sliding scale. They want a God who would show some level of arbitrariness rather than rigidness. A God who is unfaithful to his own decrees and laws or a God who cares so little about what is right and what is wrong that he never gives laws to begin with. Well, God's neither of those. In fact, the law isn't just an act of God, it's a reality of His being. And judgment isn't simply an act that God can or cannot engage in. It is part of who He is. God can no no less uh, uh, stop from judgment or withhold judgment than you and I could withhold breathing and still survive. It is It's not so much, the law is not so much a creation of God as much as it is a revelation of who He is, a declaration of who He is. He hates what is not right. He hates what is not just. He hates what is not true. He hates what is not faithful. And for Him to be God, He must hate all evil, all injustice, all that is not right. And for Him to be right, He must punish it. In legal theory, the phrase for centuries has been put this way, judix domnitur cum nocens absolvitur. The judge is condemned if the guilty are acquitted. So God's got a simple choice. Either we're condemned or He's condemned. Either we're guilty or He's guilty. 
His act of judgment is fundamental then to his character. He's not the guilty one. We are. And his judgment, in order for it to be consistent with his character, it must be absolutely objective, absolutely lawful, absolutely justifiable, absolutely impartial. If you remember, this is sort of the centerpiece of Paul's argument here in chapter 2. In verse 11 particularly, he says it very succinctly, there is no impartiality with God. This is a passage that focuses on the impartiality, on the rightness, on the fairness, on the validity and the legitimacy of God's judgment. That it will not be uneven and it will not be arbitrary. And all of it sort of driving to the ultimate conclusion in chapter 3 that every mouth will be stopped, every excuse be done away with, and every person be held accountable to God, the whole world accountable to God, as he says in 3, 9. But I want to draw your attention this morning, particularly to verses 12 through 16, because whereas he sort of introduces that in the first 11 verses, this impartiality of God, verses 12 through 16 are a robust expansion, an explanation of this impartiality of God, of this justness of God. And it begins, you'll notice, with this explanatory conjunction. Uh, the word for, the word because, uh, some indication that he's going to expand or explain this idea of God's impartiality and God's fairness. A defense of exactly how God's justice is perfectly impartial, perfectly fair, perfectly just. And he's going to justify God's judgment really on three essential principles. These three principles that establish that God's judgment of all mankind will be the most fair, the most just, the most pure judgment that ever could exist. The principles are simple, but they're vital. And the first one is simply this, that God will judge us by what we do. He'll judge us by what we do. We've already sort of touched on this point back in chapter 2 verse 6 Paul states it plainly there but as we come to verse 12 he says it again in more clear tones for all who have sinned without the law will be will perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law will be justified Well, see, we like to judge people. We like to examine them based on all kinds of factors, or we tend to, I should say. We judge people based on appearances. We judge people based on status. We often judge people based on stereotypes. We judge them based on charm, based on intelligence, based on wit, based on wealth, based on relationships. What kind of people they know, who they know that we know. We make all kinds of judgments of people of all, for all kinds of reasons. And we factor in all of these things that make it so difficult for you and I to be really fair, to be really impartial whenever we're making 
considerations of those around us. We have a natural propensity to be more lenient to those that we know, more lenient to our children, more lenient to our spouse, more lenient to whoever than we are to other people. God's not like that, and He's not going to do that. He's going to flatten out everything, put everything on an absolute level playing field, everyone on exactly the same footing, the same criteria, whether or not you are a doer of the law. Paul writes, you remember Romans 2, particularly with a focus on these Jews who we would say were the uh, most uh, religious or some of the most moral of their day. In fact, their, their mor- morals and their fastidiousness to their religion was a constant thorn in the flesh of their Roman uh, conquerors and, and occupiers. And these are the people who supposed, along with their religious fastidiousness, that they would somehow be treated in a special way they would be treated as, as uh, at least I should say, given credit above everyone else because they affirmed the law, because they were defenders of the law. They were defenders of God, if you will. And Paul's point here is that God's not going to care. If you're a hearer of the law, it's not going to matter. It's just simply doing And hearing would have been something that the Jews put a lot of emphasis on. This was a very important word. If you know your Old Testament, you would know that well. The the word here is just throughout the entire Old Testament from the very motto of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To the giving of the law when Moses sells him on the mountain. Give attention to the words of this law. That's another word for hear. And over and over again, they were supposed to hear, they were supposed to listen. The Proverbs are full of admonitions to people to listen, to give ear. This was something that was looked upon as vital for Israel, something that was spoken about and written about often. And this is exactly what they gave themselves to. If ever there was a nation and a people who were bent on hearing, it was Israel in the first century. Week after week, in synagogue after synagogue, throughout their nation and around the Roman Empire, this is what they did. They listened, they heard, they read, they explained, they taught the Scripture. They memorized the Scripture. Paul wants them to know so clearly that it's not those who make it their practice to hear It's those who make it their practice to do. They'll be the ones who are accepted, or as he says in this verse, justified, saved by that doing. Teaching and learning and repeating, none of it ultimately matters to God. God's going to use this one single unifying criteria that balances all the scales for everyone, and it is doing. It's doing. Now, the implications are really spelled out in verses 17 through 21 as Paul sort of 
continues to drive home this point. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So he's talking to you, you who know the Bible, you who know God's will, who you who approve what is true, you approve what is right, you approve what is sound, you approve what is excellent, you're sure that you are a guide to others, you appeal to them to follow your counsel, your wisdom, your guidance, you're a, a guide to the blind, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of others. You, he says, who are so adamant about affirming and, and promoting and teaching and speaking and all of these things, you, he says, have the same problem that everyone else has. Is that after saying and, and affirming and teaching and promoting all of these things, you have the same issue that you do not do. You do not do. After you tell so many others to. You might be the one who points out the flaws and the failures and the missteps. And you might be the one who snitches and tattles. You might be the one who criticizes. You might be the one who, who uh, offers counsel, advice. It doesn't matter what form it comes in. You are the one who is speaking what is true You're the one who is speaking what is sound, and yet none of that will get you any credit before God. None of it. Zero. We sometimes just sort of assume that it will. We assume assume that that by, by being in the right, by standing shoulder to shoulder and promoting God's word, that somehow he's going to take some level of pleasure in that, and he's going to give us some sort of credit in that. And Paul says, no, it doesn't. You might have a reputation. You might have a following. You might have some favor with men. They might have some respectability before them. You might have all those things, but it won't build any favor with God. It may impress others, but it won't impress Him. That's because at the end of the day, it's relatively easy to hear. Really Relatively easy to know and even relatively easy to teach. But what is the real difficult thing is to live consistently, consistently honest, consistently integritable, consistently kind, consistently fair and faithful and prayerful. And yet when you come before God as judge, that's exactly what he's going to look at. That's all he's going to take into account. That's how you'll be measured. You say, well, I I, I get that, but that really in itself is unfair. Because, Because those who have more knowledge at least have more opportunity. Those who have more knowledge at least have more of a, of a chance to, to obey, more of a chance to comply, more of a chance to do. 
because at least they know what they're supposed to do. And so, so when, when God says He's going to judge us according to the law, whether or not we're doers of the law, that's, that can't be fair. That can't be right. Because not everyone gets to hear the law. Not everyone gets to understand the law at the same level. Well, that's Paul's second principle in establishing the justness of God. Not only that He's going to judge us according to what we do, but also according to what we know. The standard of doing, in other words, will be measured according to the standard of knowing. He says in verse 14, When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Paul, of course, would have known in his own day that there were many, even in his own day, who had never heard the law. He would have understood there were many throughout history who had never heard the Bible. Even in our own day, with all the advances of technology and information that's out there, there are still myriads of people around the globe, even today, who have never heard the Bible. There are people who are born deep into Islamic cultures, people who are born deep into Buddhist cultures, people who are born deep into into pagan cultures, uncivilized cultures, remote cultures, people who are born into completely secular environments. They grow up their whole lives, going through their whole course of life, and never once do they ever have a chance to hear the Bible. They will go from birth to grave and never even hear about Jesus Christ and never even hear any accurate message about God. What about them? Is God going to judge them? Is He going to judge them fairly? Is it even right for Him to judge them? Is it right for Him to hold them accountable? Do they really even have an opportunity to do what God wants them to do? Well, Paul's answer is yes. Because all those people who do not have the law, who do not have the Scripture, do not have a chance to hear the gospel, Paul says they show the work of the law written on their hearts by instinctively doing the things that the law requires. He's not suggesting they do everything the law requires or even that they desire to do everything that's written in the Bible. He's not suggesting that even though they are, are, are not born in a, in a context where they hear the Scripture, that they yearn for everything the Scripture affirms. He's not saying even that they have the same moral code inherently that is spelled out on the pages of Scripture and they instinctively love everything on the pages of Scripture. In other words, Paul's not saying that the law is written on their hearts. He couldn't say that because that is the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. This is the work that that the Holy Spirit performs when we're born again. The Scripture says that God puts His Spirit within us and He writes His law on our hearts. So that we now, whereas before may not have had a yearning for everything that's in God's Word, now as believers we do. It's all written there. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that the law is written on our hearts. What is he saying? 
the work of the law is there. The work of the law. And what is the work of the law? Well, in one word, it is conviction. It's conviction. The law in its fundamental sense was given, as Paul says in Galatians 3, as a schoolmaster, as a tutor. And its primary purpose, he says in that chapter, is to imprison everyone under sin. It is given to imprison everyone under sin. And when people who do not have the specific law of God given in the Bible still demonstrate a sensitivity to things that are spoken in the Bible, things that are right and wrong according to the Bible, by establishing very similar ideals that are found in the Bible, at the end of the day, they can't even live up to those ideals. They can't even live up to those ideals. And so the work of the law is accomplished by their conscience. The work of the law is written on their hearts. They reflect, in other words, a moral code. They adopt a moral code, whether or not it is in the form of a false religion, a false holy book, whether it's in the form of some pagan animistic religion, whether it's in the form of some moral secular philosophy, whether it's in the form of just simply some governmental laws. They in some way reflect a moral code. They demonstrate a level of ideals. Every society, every culture has had these fundamental ideals. They've had, for example, fundamental definitions of marriage and some definition of commitment to marriage. They've had some definition of a just versus an unjust killing. Every culture has had some definition of protection of private property. And so they have, in essence, a definition of what is an adulterer and what is a murderer and what is a thief. But even beyond those very, very basic morals, they have expectations of honesty and work. They expect people to speak the truth to them. And at some very basic level, they understand the injustice if they are forced to do the work for everyone else. They have some built-in sense that everyone should do their own work or some uh, idea that everyone at least should do their fair share. And so they have these sensibilities, they have these morals, these ethics at different levels in different societies, civilized and uncivilized. And the question is, where does all that come from? Where does all of it come from? Where do all those moral codes come from? And why do they have so many fundamental things in common with God's law? Well, Paul says it is by nature. It is by nature. And more particularly, it is by conscience. It is by conscience. God has built it into them. He has formed them in His image and being made in the image of God, unlike all the creatures, unlike all the animals, unlike all the creeping things of the world, 
unlike every other living thing, man has a conscience. And embedded in that conscience is this fundamental moral code. And so he says these people who, although not having a law, they become a law to themselves. By affirming and by establishing whatever level it is, some ideal, some moral code, Paul says in that there is sufficient proof for God to demonstrate their sinfulness. There is sufficient proof for the work of the law to be accomplished. There's sufficient proof for every person to be imprisoned under sin. Sufficient evidence of their sinfulness in their own failure to live up to their own ideals. And so the principle is this. God judges all men not by what they've heard, haven't heard, but by what they have. God judges them not by what they don't know, but by what they know, and that's enough. It's sufficient. Sufficient enough to justify God punishing them. Sufficient enough for God to declare them sinners. Sufficient enough to to demonstrate the bent towards uh, uh, sinfulness in their heart. Sufficient enough for Him to judge them. Not that they create their own laws. When Paul says they are a law to themselves, he's not suggesting some form of relativism here. He's not suggesting that every man can make up his own truth and that therefore you and I don't have the right to go and proclaim the truth to them, that they have their own law, they have their own truth. That's not what he's suggesting. He's simply saying that when these people form these ideals, when they form these virtues, and then when they can't even live up to their own virtues... All of it is sufficient enough for God to demonstrate what's in their heart. You say, well, what about those people who don't even seem to have a moral code? What about those really wretched people who we see them just engage in senseless and brutal and, 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 and immoral acts and seemingly have, they have no conscience? What about those people? Well, you have to understand the way the conscience works. The conscience, as we said, is something that God has given to each one of us as distinct from all the animals. And it's meant to be a guide. And and in terms of being a guide into truth, in terms of being a guide into what is right, it is only as reliable as the information that is fed to it. It is, in other words, not in and of itself a reliable guide. It is, it is improved or it is, it is undermined according to the information. If it has good information, if it's well informed, then what takes place is the conscience constantly measures your actions according to what it knows to be right. And when we deviate from what we understand, our conscience is afflicted. It's afflicted, it brings pain, it brings suffering. In some cases, it's mental. In some cases, as David says in Psalm 32, it even became physical. As we know even today, that anguish in the mind releases 
certain chemicals into the body and can bring even pain, physical pain. His, 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 his joints and bones hurt. On the other hand, if the conscience has bad information, it's less of a reliable guide. Its ability to provide reliable guidance is severely hampered. Its warnings are no longer reliable indicators of what's right and wrong. Someone may tell you, just follow your conscience. Well, that's only as good as the kind of information that you've given to your conscience. And the Bible speaks about having a good conscience in the sense of having a well-informed and therefore reliable conscience. And then it speaks also of having a pure or a clear conscience, that is, one that is well-informed, accompanied by a life that is not in violation of the conscience. So the conscience is clear and it is pure in the sense that it's not afflicting you the way that Sometimes your conscience does. You're living in accordance with the standard that your conscience demands. But the Bible also speaks about a weak conscience. A conscience that is not well informed and is therefore less reliable or it has conflicting information. It has, it has information that it has picked up along the way from various external sources. It's heard one person say one thing, another person say another thing. It has heard its parents say this, its friends say this, its culture say this. And then when it comes time to a decision, there's doubt, there's confusion, there's worry. Deep down inside, sometimes there's an unarticulated sense that something's wrong. And then the Bible speaks about an evil conscience or... A defiled conscience. And that is when you, for whatever reason, no longer listen to those impulses of your conscience and you deny them, you suppress them, you do whatever you can to drown them. And the next time you, you, you experience some suffering from your conscience, it's weaker and weaker and weaker until the point where whenever you do something, whenever you behave in a certain way, there's no sensation from your conscience, in which case you have what the Bible calls a seared conscience. Well, that can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter where you get your information. You can get your information from the Bible. You can sit here week after week after week, and you can hear the Word taught. You can hear it from your parents. You can grow up in a Christian home, and you can just turn off the conscience. And every time it tells you not not to do something, you can deny it, and you can go your own way, and the conscience becomes weaker and weaker and weaker, and you just uh, go out there less and less sensitized to what it's doing, and pretty soon your conscience is not even an issue anymore, and you are capable of doing all kinds of horrific acts. Or in some cases, people grow up in a context where their conscience is weak, where it's poorly informed, where it's sending them all kinds of mixed signals, where they try to follow their conscience in one avenue and then they turn around and feel immediately guilty for doing it. And then whenever they are doing something else, they 
they feel uh, uh, somehow abused or somehow misled, and so they're, they're dealing with the confusing signals within their own heart and mind. And so what they do is they just sort of, just sort of back away and, and try to turn off all the noise. Just try to forget about what feels right and wrong, forget about what might be right and wrong, and just go out and live for the moment. But don't be confused whenever they come to that point of immorality and insensitivity that it was because they had no conscience. It was because when their conscience did speak to them, they denied it, they suppressed it. They had some internal battle going on. They were still fundamental times whenever they, they wanted to engage in a conversation, they wanted to engage in a friendship, they wanted to engage in an activity, and something inside of them was telling them deep in their heart, you shouldn't do this, and they ignored it. Whenever they felt like they needed to show some act of kindness or they needed to do something right and they just chose to go their own selfish way, they just ignored it. Or even seemingly when everyone else around you says something's okay and you sense that it's not okay and yet you go ahead and you do it. And you just sort of blow past the debate that's going on in your mind. As Paul says there in verse 15, are conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse us? We wrestle with things. Sometimes we defy those feelings of our conscience and we go ahead and do them anyway. Many times people don't even know that we're struggling in our heart. Our parents They don't know that we're struggling in our heart. Our spouse doesn't know that we're struggling in our heart. Our friends don't know that we're struggling in our heart. But there's a battle raging in our minds. We have a desire to go do something and yet our heart is telling us it's not right. And so what we do is we just suppress our heart, deny our heart, and we go ahead and do it. And all of that, at the end of the day, all of that, Paul says, that's a law to itself. Whether or not your conscience is informed by the Bible or not, whatever moral ideal that you set aside over and over and over again is plenty sufficient to demonstrate how worthy you are of punishment, which really is the third principle that establishes the justness of God's judgment and that is the fact that he will judge us not only by what we uh, do and not only by what we know but also by what other people don't know you see there's all kinds of things as i said that we take into account all kinds of things that we would judge a person by but one thing that we can't see is all of that raging battle in people's hearts one thing we can't see is all the times that they that 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 people just absolutely deny their conscience and go ahead and do what they want to do all the times they wrestle through the guilt and the shame and go ahead and follow a path of disobedience even when other people don't know 
Paul says God knows. And in verse 16, he says, On that day, the day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, God sees your actions, but He also knows what goes on in your heart. He sees your actions, but He also knows everything you know. He knows what you understand to be right and what you understand to be wrong, and He knows every time you choose the wrong. I was uh, thinking about this this week with all of the with the riots going on in Baltimore and all the discussion about the, the justice and the injustice and the crimes that were committed there. And I read one headline about the officers who were charged with, with a murder in manslaughter in this case. And one of the headlines said this, literally, quote, to win convictions... Prosecutors must get inside the heads of the officers, end quote. Well, let me tell you, they'll have a hard time doing that. They'll have a hard time moving beyond speculation or maybe some low level of probability. Because there's only one person that can get inside your head. But he will. God will. And he'll know every motive, and he'll know every misstep beyond what your conscience tells you not to do. He'll know every time that you step forward in rebellion. He'll know every act that you did against your own moral code. He'll know everything that you did against what you knew was right, what you knew was wrong. He, he will know all of it. He'll judge the secrets of all men by Christ Jesus. Literally, you'll stand before Christ, and God has appointed him as the judge of all men. Jesus says, all judgment has been given to me. And Paul says, all of us will be judged by Christ Jesus. You know, the, the good news is that not only is he our judge... But the Bible says He's also our substitute. That literally when He is standing there and He is accusing and He is uh, revealing and He is demonstrating all of your rebellion and after all of the pronouncement has been made over your guilt, He's willing, if you will, to step out from behind the bench and to also take your place as the accused. And to take your punishment and to take all of your guilt and to absolutely pass the sentence and then to suffer all of the punishment. Of course, all that demands that you accept your guilt. All that demands that you accept your, your, uh, the justness of God's judgment, the legitimacy of God's accusation. All of that demands that you accept the sinfulness of your own heart. And the Bible says when you do that, when you cry out, when you ask the Lord for mercy, He's provided a Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only will judge our hearts, but He'll take the judgment and the punishment so that you and I can stand 
free. You and I can stand free. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to be reminded this morning of our Savior who's not only just, but also the justifier of men. So thankful that we have a merciful and a kind God who doesn't need to set aside your love for holiness and what is right and what is just, but in your wisdom have provided a way. So even we, who are so deep, deeply guilty, can readily acknowledge your standard, can affirm your truth, can love your law, and still, and still, be forgiven. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that this morning. We bless you and we affirm your right and your place and your honor as judge, just as we honor and praise you as Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.